Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. And I'll be reading today from 1 John 3, verses 11 to 22. For this is a message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with truths and sorry, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and we receive from him anything we ask, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. This is the word of the Lord. We're continuing to work through a series that we're calling um, The Face of Love through the month of July, and we're tracking through together the book of First John, and it's our privilege this morning to welcome Pastor Sundar Christian, Krishnan to share the message with us. Uh, many of you in the room I know are familiar with Pastor Sundar. He was the, uh, the senior pastor at Rexdale Alliance Church for over 30 years. Now he's a part of our church family with his wife, Sham, uh, and he's also Vijay's dad. Um, and so we're just uh, privileged to have you share the word with us. I think one of the things I so appreciate about you, Pastor Mr. Sunder, um, and when you uh, when you preach, is that you not only um, share like sharp insights into the Word of God, but you do it out of a life that has been sharpened by the Word of God. And so you're modeling to us what it looks like to see this Word shape and inform and transform us. And so we're we're so glad you're sharing with us this morning. Thanks so much, Tony. It's always a pleasure and a joy to preach God's Word, especially here. You know, when my daughter was growing up, uh, her favorite movie was The Sound of Music. And she probably watched it five or six times. I suspect many of you here have probably seen it, and maybe even remember some of it. You know, fairly early in the story, um, Maria, who's a um, novitiate at a nearby convent in Salzburg, Austria, is sent off as part of an assignment uh, to be a governess for a, a widower named Von Trapp and his uh, seven children. Now, Maria, as you remember, was just a totally irrepressible individual, and any occasion was worthy of a song. And so she sets out, you know, a captain with seven children, what's so fearful about that? A suitcase in one hand, a guitar on the other hand, a guitar case, and she was swinging and, and singing, and the song that she breaks out into at that moment is called Confidence. You know, I have confidence in sunshine, I have confidence in rain, and then she kind of ends that verse by always saying, I have confidence in confidence alone, besides which you see, I have confidence in me, you know. That was the ref ref uh, repeating refrain of that song until she finds herself standing in front of these massive gates of the Von Trapp estate. And all that confidence just leaks out from it. She says, oh my, 
Life's like that sometimes. We're just moving along merrily, pretty confident of our approach to life. When a book, a conversation, a TED talk, something on the internet just shatters our confidence. You know? Sometimes it's not dealing with extremely important things and you recover fast. You know, my wife drinks 1% milk. All of a sudden, one day, a friend walked into the room and said, well, homogenized milk is much better for you. Well, she was kind of thrown for a loop for a while. Didn't last very long. She went right back to 1% milk until a few days later, another friend who came for dinner who's lactose intolerant said, all milk is bad for you. <laughs> well, now her con lack of confidence swung the other way and she's almost recovered. I thought she had fully recovered and she asked the question yesterday again. Now, as I said, when, when these things happen, when the questions involved are not very deep or relevant, you recover fast. But sometimes the stakes are a little bit higher. Let's say, for example, you kind of decided that you were going to live a healthy lifestyle. So you ate wisely, you exercised regularly, and were pretty pleased with yourself, anticipating a trouble-free existence for many decades to come, when either yourself or a friend who's the same age as you, who lived the same way, is suddenly taken to hospital. It happened to a friend of ours. And you say, my, is it really worthwhile, all this rigor that I'm putting into my life? Might take a little bit longer to recover from that. But what if something happens that calls into question your worldview? That frame of mind, that lens through which we interpret everything. By the way, everybody has a worldview and most of us don't know what it is. It's unconsciously held. And someone is here who says, I don't believe in worldviews at all. Guess what? That's your worldview. You know, it's inescapable. What happens when something just suddenly rocks your worldview? Many of you know that Billy Graham passed away earlier on this year. He was a man who preached to hundreds, thousands, tens of one, one occasion to a million people, I'm told, in Korea. But before all of his big, huge public uh, crusades, they were called in those days, began, he talks of a time when his confidence was seriously rocked when the academic world uh, of Bible, Bible study just called into question uh, the reliability of the scriptures. And for him, that was the foundation. Remember, Billy Graham's famous line was, the Bible says. Now, how he recovered is not the point of the story. The point is that something happened to rock his worldview. And it doesn't just happen only for people with religious worldviews. Before I became a pastor at Rexdale, we lived in Mississauga, and our neighbor across from us, who had two children the same age as Vijay and Sheila, and therefore were good, became good friends, he was a, uh, taught business management at Ryerson, I think. He was a committed atheist. But he was a good friend of ours, and so we had lots of good conversations. And he held his worldview extremely confidently. And then we moved away from there. We moved to the parsonage at Rexdale. And a couple of decades passed, maybe longer than that. And Sham re-established contact with Marilyn, who's Ray's wife, and discovered that Ray had passed away. He died of cirrhosis of the liver. He had a problem with alcohol. What Sham also learned was that during that last week of his life, he was unbelievably scared and afraid. His confidently held atheistic worldview completely collapsed in the face of death. And it was, wasn't until he had a conversation with the chaplain that he quietened down. What happened, we don't know. Again, the process is not important. The, I tell you those stories simply to remind us of the fact that all the way from relatively innocuous things like what percent fat our milk contains, all the way to worldviews, whether theistic or atheistic, can be suddenly rocked and confidence can just leak out of us. It can leave us in faith issues asking questions like, do I really believe in God? Is what I believe true? 
Do I have what it takes to recognize truth? Do I have spiritual life, eternal life within me? What happens after I die and stand before God? What happens when something rocks your worldview and leaves you asking questions like that? How do we move from confusion back to confidence? That's the issue we're going to look at today. Not pride or arrogance, but the kind of confidence that isn't at the mercy of every new bit of information, every new dialogue, every new book. How do we move from confusion to confidence? That's what we want to talk about as we continue our series on the face of love. And the opening and closing sections of the verses that I'm going to look at today. By the way, just a quick reminder by way of background. Uh, John, who was Jesus' closest disciple, wrote this letter probably to a group of churches in the, around the area of Ephesus, roughly corresponding to Izmir in modern-day Turkey. And there were people who had risen up within this church who were calling into question the fundamental tenets of the gospel that these people had received and believed. And they were calling into question the fact, was Jesus really God come in human form? Do we really need, did Jesus really die on the cross and do we need to believe in him to have forgiveness of sins? Not only that, these people claim to have special anointing that was denied the ordinary Christians. And so this, un, uh, not surprisingly, rocked the worldview of these Christians and left them asking those questions. So John writes this letter to help these confused Christians come back to confidence. And in the section we're looking at today, chapter 3, it actually begins in chapter 2, verse 28, and ends in chapter 3, verse 21. And those verses, see, they both have to do with confidence. Chapter 2, verse 28 says, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So the section opens with a statement on confidence before Jesus when he arrives. It ends in chapter 3, verse 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So obviously the subject has to do with confidence. It begins and ends, brackets the whole subject of confidence. Very pertinent to our question. John in the intermediate section actually gives us three reasons. I'm only going to focus on one of them and you guessed which it is. Look at chapter 3 verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. <laughs> That's the one message, right? John throughout has been saying it. The short answer to the question is, it's a life of love that gives us the sense of confidence. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So first of all, John reinforces right away that the fundamental answer to the question of confidence is the thing that at rock bottom gives us confidence that we are truly connected with Jesus and the truth is that we're living a life of love. In fact, that, he says, the love of the brothers and sisters, especially within the body of Christ, is the primary evidence that we've actually been regenerated or made alive. You know, we sang about, I'm alive because you're alive. Singing about it is one thing. How do you know that that life is within you? He said, we, we are loving the brothers. And he states the opposite. Anyone who does not love the brother doesn't have. Is still in death. So the stakes are high, right, right away. And in this section, John amplifies love. He doesn't just leave it to the concepts. He said, what does love look like? And he gives a negative and a positive example. I'm going to unpack both of those today, and you'll see how relevant they are to life. The negative example is about Cain. Don't be like Cain who murdered his brother. 
Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and brothers were righteous. What is the story? Story about Cain and Abel. It happens very, very early in Bible history. In fact, it's a story of two brothers, Adam and Eve's two sons. They come to offer worship to God, and Abel's offering is accepted, and Cain's is not. The details are not important for us. They have to do with the issue of the presence or absence of faith. That's another sermon. What is important for us is to realize that dynamics that was going on inside Cain's heart because his offering was rejected. He was angry, of course, with God and with Abel. He was jealous that his offering had been accepted. And I'm sure another contributing factor was the conviction that came into his own heart by the life of faith of the other person because Abel's offering was motivated by faith in God. Cain's was his own ideas. It is at this point that, that the command, don't be like a murderer like Cain, comes a little bit closer to home. Because after all, you could ask yourself, do we really need to be told not to be murderers? You don't need a sermon on that. You don't need the text of the Bible. It's pretty safe to acknowledge that there's nobody like that here. Although I have to say, one time when I was actually preaching through this in a series on Ten Commandments at Rexdale on Thou Shalt Not Murder, the, yeah, the gentleman who was actually manning the audio booth that day had actually been in jail for murder. So you can't assume anything. But I, if I were a betting man, I'd say there's nobody who's a murderer here. And you don't want to be one either. So you don't really need this. So why is he saying this to us? Notice what he says at the end. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Hatred that comes out of the feelings of anger, jealousy, and a conviction of our faithlessness by somebody else's life of righteousness are emotional dynamics that all of us are familiar with. So it comes a little bit closer to home. But the question still arises. I mean, why would you put hatred and murder on the same spectrum? You know, when you murder somebody, anyone who murders somebody else is basically saying, I don't want you in my life. I just don't want to have you mess up my life anymore. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And of course, the surest way of making sure that that happens is you kill the person. Then they're not anyone. They cannot do anything more. They cannot say anything more. They cannot block any of your goals. They're finished. They're out of the way. Hatred, while not a crime, says exactly the same thing. Get out of my life. And don't ever come back again. Or you stomp out and say, I don't care if I ever see you again. I'm not coming back. They're basically saying the same thing. I just wish you weren't around in my life. And there are slightly milder versions of that, but they have the same dynamic. People we avoid. I'll sit over this way. That way I won't have to even see them. I hope they're not going to show up at the party. It would be wonderful if they left this church. Those are all just slightly milder versions, but they're all on the same spectrum. You don't want this person around. That's why John puts hatred and murder together on the same spectrum. Now, there might be some of you who say, look, Sundra, not only am I not a murderer, I actually don't even hate anyone. There isn't a single person in my life right now that I feel any of those emotions toward. And I believe you because I think I can honestly say that. I cannot, I cannot think of a single person right now that I hate, that I want to avoid, uh, that I wish doesn't show up in a particular place. I think I can say that. So I can believe you that most of us might say, well, well neither hatred nor 
uh, neither murder nor hatred applies to me. So, how does this work out in my life? Well, look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 to 22. You have heard said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, which was their highest ruling body. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Notice those two statements. You have heard said, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Now Jesus goes one step further. Not only does John put murder and hatred on the same spectrum, Jesus puts murder and anger on the same spectrum as well. And now all of a sudden, every one of us is included. <laughs> There's no one who can say, yeah, I'm not a murderer, I believe you. I'm not, ha I'm not hating anyone, I believe you. Don't say I'm not angry, or I've never been angry. All of us are now included. Now, why is anger on the same spectrum as hatred, murder and hatred? I I'm really indebted to Dallas Willard. Uh, Dallas Willard passed away a few years ago, the professor of philosophy at the uh, University of Southern California. In 1999, he wrote an award-winning book uh, called The Divine Conspiracy. It was on the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he says. He, he talks about, he said, first of all, he said, anger is something that rises within us spontaneously. It is a response to blocked goals. So I'm driving along the highway. I want to get there at a particular time. Maybe today I want to be here at 9.15 at the latest. And all of a sudden, somebody in front of me just jams the brake and I rear-end the car. Now they've blocked my goals. I can't get there in time now. I don't have this margin of time. I don't have the, the, the money that's going to cost me, the energy that's involved, and anger rises up within me because someone has blocked my goal. It happens with any kind of an external block. Maybe someone beat you to a promotion at work or the coach didn't choose your son, chose somebody else's, and you had this goal, and you get angry towards the coach. Anytime an ex uh, our, one of our goals is blocked by something outside of us, that object, or that, and if it's a person, becomes the object of our anger. Now, while anger rises up spontaneously, Willard says we have a choice whether to receive that and indulge in that anger or not. And he says most of us choose to receive that anger and indulge in it. And here is a brilliant insight why. He says anger indulged instead of simply waved off always has in it an element of self-righteousness and vanity. Find a person who has embraced anger and you will find a person with a wounded ego. Only this element of self-righteousness can support me as I retain my anger long after the occasion of it or allow its intensity to heat up to a point of senseless rage. Anger is in the wounded ego. Me! This shouldn't be happening to me. They shouldn't do this to me. Do they know who I am? How come they don't take me into account? in this. See, it's a me. The wounded ego, he says, is at the heart of our decision to receive anger when our goals are blocked. And Jesus goes one step further. He says, anyone who says raka, what's raka? Raka was an old Aramaic word that was used to express contempt. Now, contempt goes beyond anger. In anger, you might even hurt somebody in your anger in your words, but you don't call into question their words. Like if you were to catch me at some time when I have been right in the middle of a really bad argument with Sham, and you were to catch me at that moment, and I'm angry, I may have even said words that hurt her and vice versa. If you were to say to me, what do you think of your wife? I would just tell you, I think she's an amazing woman. 
She's got incredible gifts of hospitality. She's a wise woman. She knows and loves the word of God. She's committed to the next generation. She prays for people. She has a soft heart. Really? And you're angry at her? Yeah, you can be angry at someone and not call into question their worth. And it'd be the same if you asked her about me. But contempt goes beyond anger. Contempt calls into question their worth. And contempt basically says, you're not even worth my getting angry over. And the goal of contempt is always to marginalize, to set aside. Raka was an Aramaic word. Today, you know what we say? Moron, jerk, loser. These are the, this is the language of contempt. And the goal of that contempt is always to marginalize, to set aside. And Willard says this. He said, once contempt is established, however, it justifies the initial anger and increases its force. To belong is a vital need based in the spiritual nature of the human being. Contempt spits on this pathetically deep need. It stabs the soul to its core and deflates the power of life. It can hurt so badly and destroy so deeply that murder would almost be a mercy. Can you see that? It can hurt so badly and destroy so deeply. Notice what it says here. Contempt stabs the soul to its core and deflates the power of life. It can hurt so badly and destroy so deeply that murder would almost be a mercy. Its power is also seen in the intensity of the resentment and the rage it always evokes. So this is the progression that Jesus is warning us against. From anger to contempt to that verbal desecration. Because once somebody is held as an object of contempt, it justifies further harm. Now, you know, when I was preparing this, I suddenly realized how serious it was when I saw this is the dynamic behind the Holocaust. All of us are familiar with the Holocaust, what, what Hitler did from 39 to 44. A few years ago, I was reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's biography, and I learned some things about the dynamics behind this. I, I, I'm not a student of history, especially war history, but it was fascinating. Apparently Germany was so humbled in the defeat of the First World War and all the treaties that it had to sign. It was a deep wound to the national ego. Remember what Willard said, where everything is rooted in a wounded ego? So there was a deep national wounding. And 20 years later, one man came to take advantage of that. And Hitler appealed to that, and then he talked about the super race. It was Nietzsche's writings that inspired him, but he talked about the superiority of the Aryan race. So the wounded ego now had to be recovered and piled upon with arrogance and pride. And then notice what happened, contempt. Who were the people in society? The marginalized, the mentally challenged. Those are the ones that were first killed. And then the verbal desecration of the Jew. And then they were killed. You see how this worked? Anger, contempt, verbal desecration, wholesale murder. Do you want to have any part to do with that? Do you see how serious this is? This is what touched me. He said, Sunta, this is not light. This is what fueled the Holocaust. And that's why Jesus is saying, be careful. Don't, the anger leading to contempt, leading to verbal desecration, where words spew out of our mouth that call into question the worth of people and leave them deflated. That is very serious business, says Jesus. It has no part in a life of love. So, now that we've seen why don't be a murderer like Cain is so relevant to all of us, we need to go deep. We need to build a bridge between that and where we are. So here are some questions I want us to park on. First of all, is there anyone in your life right now that you hate? Or want to have absolutely nothing to do with? 
anyone you are determined to avoid or whom you cannot wish well. Is there anyone towards whom your anger has moved to contempt, to words that seek to exclude or marginalize or diminish them? And perhaps the most important of all, what about the wounded ego fueling the self-righteous anger? It all starts here, my friend. The wounded ego. My wife is a very flexible feeler. I'm a structured thinker. Every time she throws last-minute requests at me, I get upset. That's a wounded ego. Deep down within, it's a wounded ego. Don't you know how I am wired? Why can't you ask me this yesterday? You're not taking who I am into account. It's a wounded ego that's deep down within. This is a huge issue in disciplining children. You come back and sit down and you want to read. It used to be a newspaper. Now it's something else. We read on the tablets and whatnot. I just want some quiet. And so a child wants your attention. And you snap at them, get angry. You should know what I need at this moment. A wounded ego is deep down within. Where is that ego functioning, my brothers and sisters? So name the person, name the feelings, and think about where your ego is coming into play. A wounded ego. We'll come back to that. Now perhaps there are some of you who are saying, you know what, I'm still okay. No murder, no hatred. No, no real contempt of people, I just don't do that. I'm not known to speak that way. And I can believe that, there are people who are like that. So I want you to keep listening because now I'm going to look at the positive example of love here. Not just the negative, but the positive example. 1 John 3, 16 to 18. This is how we know what love to Jesus. Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brothers in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. So now the positive, the negative example is don't give in to this anger, contempt, verbal desecration sequence in your life. Stop it at the very beginning at the wounded ego because the stakes are high. The positive example, he talks in general terms like laying down our lives and then specifically about giving material wealth to people who are in need. Now once again, just like in the murder situation, we can very quickly dismiss it. You could have looked at that and say, I'm not like Cain. I don't hate people. I'm not a murderer. This has nothing to do with me. In the same way, we could quickly look at this and say, oh yeah, I'm, I have pity. I pity suffering people. I'm familiar with the emotion of pity. And we do give money. Sundar in this church, and I know you give lot, you've given lots of money. You've given lots of money to the REACH campaign and the 10% of that goes straight to the orphanage. And yeah, it's so wonderful. But, but just like there, we had to dig a bit deeper to understand the dynamics of anger and contempt. So here we've got to dig a little bit below the surface so that we don't excuse ourselves too quickly. And for myself, this is where the sermon spoke to me. A couple of months ago as I was working through it, God really spoke to me about this. I want to be weaving that throughout this as well. So what's he saying here? First of all, that phrase that is translated has no pity on him is probably not an, a, a, the best translation. It literally says, "Closes whoever closes his heart to a person in need. 
And in order to understand the biblical background to that, you've got to go all the way back to the Old Testament. When God first redeemed his people who were in slavery, brought them out from Pharaoh's captivity, through Moses, he gave them wonderful laws to live by, wise laws that would structure them as a harmonious society and be a testimony to all the chaotic nations around them about who their God was. One of the laws had to do with a sabbatical year. Every seven years, amongst other things, they were to forgive debts. And then in that context, Moses is warning his people. He said, now listen, imagine the situation. You're coming to me, and we're in, we are in ancient Israel, and you're coming to me and say, Sundar, I, I, just, I, need, I need some money. And you have that money. <laughs> but just as you're about to think whether to give it or not, this thought suddenly comes to your mind. Oh, next week sabbatical year starts. I'm not going to get this money back. He says, that's the kind of thinking, the mean-spirited thinking that you have to be avoid. They have to avoid. So that's what Moses was warning his people, and that's the background to this phrase, do not close your heart. So basically what he's saying is, when a need comes to your attention, we're not in sabbatical years anymore, but what kind of rationalization do we give? He says, don't rationalize your way out of this when you have the capacity to give. Now, I don't know what your rationalizations are, but here's what happened to me. Because as I was studying this text, I felt the Lord very saying to me, you need to increase your giving to the poor. Well, here were all the rationalizations that kicked in. I said, Lord, the average evangelical gives 2.4% of their income. I give a lot more than that, and I've given that throughout my Christian faith. I actually give even more than 10% because that's what most Christians think we need to do. And by the way, what about all the money that we spend on hospitality, having people in our home, and uh, many of them are missionaries. Isn't that all giving? And I'm retired now. I don't know how many years I'm going to live. I don't want to be a burden to Vijay and Sheila. I have six grandchildren. I need to spend, you know, this, this is what was going through my mind. What about you? I don't know what your rationalizations are. I don't know how you close your heart when God says to give. But whatever they are, he says, don't close it. Don't rationalize it. Now it goes more than just money. Look what he says. He said, anyone who lays down their lives. <laughs> now, here again, just like in murder, it's highly unlikely that any one of us is literally going to have to die for someone. Although I kind of suspect that we would do it in an instant if it were our friends. Even me, and I'm not a high-risk individual. I'm not wired that way at all. I don't go canyoning like my son does and stuff like that. I, don't, I stay away from all that stuff. But... I was in uh, Turkey once. I was speaking at a conference. And the people who had invited me, they had three young children, the two girls and a boy. And we were down in the basement, and all of a sudden, the earth began. Was a, I mean, concrete floor was swinging. One child was with us, and the mother went to look at the other two children. I didn't go anywhere. I would have thought before that my normal instincts would have been to run. I didn't. I waited quite calmly until all the children were found, and we went out. I was quite amazed at myself. I think it's just because most of us, when the time comes, would be happy to take a bullet. I'd die for my wife and my children in a moment. But dying daily, different ballgame altogether. <laughs> Laying down my life every day? Hmm. You know, I'd rather sign a check than give away my time. <laughs> if you came to me and said, you have a hundred bucks? I need it? I'll give it to you. If you said to me, can you come next week and help me move? Something dies inside of me. Because time is far more valuable to me than money. 
I'm always desperate for time. <laughs> laying down our lives every day is a million times more difficult than laying it down once. And the same thing can happen, the same kind of rationalization. Oh, she wants me to move, but I preach all the time. I'm called to be a speaker. Get, let them go to someone who has the gift of service. This is the way rationalizations will kick in. They say, don't close your heart if you're able to. Now, you may not be able to give, that's a different matter, but if you're able to. You see how this works? This is what we're being warned against. So, time for one more question. Any tight-fistedness or mean-spiritedness sustained by rationalizations in the face of ongoing need, either material or time or energy? How do you respond? What arguments do you use to say no? Now, as we reflected upon these, either the questions on hatred and anger and murder, the not wishing well, the avoiding the people, the stuff that's rooted in the wounded ego, or this tight-fistedness. If you had to say yes, if you had names and feelings that come up to your mind right now, what do we do with them? How do we deal with them? That's the last part we'll go at. 1 John 3, 19 to 21. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. So John is still talking about the same subject. It's not a new thing. It seems like it's unconnected because it's suddenly talking about confidence in prayer and whatnot. But he's connected. He said, this then is how we know we belong to the truth. He's still talking about confidence. And how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Now, again, we'll have to dig below the surface. Just like we quickly could have rejected the Cain issue and said, I'm not a murderer, but I had to dig below the surface. Just like could have quickly rejected the pity issue and said, oh, that's not my problem. I give lots of money and we have to dig below the surface. So here too, we have to dig below the surface. The surface argument goes something like this. Oh, we need to set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our heart. So what's you might think of this as saying, okay, so if your hearts are getting condemned, you know, if this kind of preaching is bothering you, you know, Sundar is convicting me about my attitude to money and my time and whatnot and how my reaction to people, I have God's much bigger than that. God knows my heart. Kind of quieten down heart. Down boy, down, you know. Calm yourself. Don't get too agitated. You'll forget all about this sermon in half an hour when you go back to your barbecuing and whatnot. Yeah, that's crass. But that's what I've had people who right in the midst of their disobedience said, God is gracious. Where is grace in your life? God's bigger. God's bigger than me. That's not what this means at all. This is not some way of setting our hearts at rest when our hearts are condemning us by appealing to the fact that God is greater. Not that way anyway. What's really going on here? Again, unfortunately, sometimes the translations don't get close to them. The fact is, the heart, cardia, is never used in the Bible as, the, uh, as conscience. It is our conscience that condemns us. It's conscience that makes us feel guilty. The heart is never used in the Bible as a conscience. What the heart is used is the central core essence of our being. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart for out of it are the wellsprings of life. So the heart is that central core essence of me that spills over into everything in my life. So what do you do when something is wrong with that heart? And that's what we know. These are heart issues, right? The wounded ego is a heart issue. The closing of our, the tight-fistedness, the rationalization, those are heart issues. What do we do? 
And then the phrase, how we set our hearts at rest, is an unfortunate translation because the verb that is used there, every other time in the Bible it is translated persuade, not set, not calm it down. So what he's really saying is, when you are faced up with these kinds of things, and these questions have probed your heart as they probed mine today, what do we do? Don't calm, don't say down, boy, down. Don't ignore the feelings. God is much greater than you. Go to him and ask him to change your heart. Because you see, in precisely these two areas, God is very different from us. There's only one person in this world who has an ego that is worthwhile boasting about. And we praised him this morning. Because for God to say that I am supreme and the only is not egotistical boasting, it's just truth. <laughs> he is who he is. He doesn't ask us to worship him because his ego is somehow diminished when we don't worship him or his ego is filled up when we worship him. It is unaffected by what you and I do. You and I have wounded egos because we function out of need. We have a need to be appreciated. God has no needs within him. Isn't it amazing that the only one who has absolute right to a supreme ego humbled himself and became obedient and became a servant? That's his heart. When he says, God is greater than my heart, he says, that's who he is. This one who had the, and he's the only one who had a right to be offended. Sin is an offense against infinite divine majesty. But he died on the cross for us. That's the heart that he has. And then when it comes to tight-fistedness, whatever your religious background taught you, forget it. Our God is not a God from whom favors have to be wrung out and eked out because he is unwilling to give. He's not tight-fisted. It talks about infinite, matchless grace that is poured out upon us. Those are precisely the two things our hearts need, right? The wounded ego needs to come to this God who alone has this massive ego without any sin and says, God, if you could humble yourself all the way to the cross, certainly you can give me that kind of a heart. So give me your heart. You're greater than my heart. <laughs> You see how much better it is than just calming your heart? It's transforming your heart by the grace of God. And then the same thing, God, I'm tight-fisted. I mean, I'm naturally given to all these rationalizations. But you're not. You're an open-handed, gracious God. Pour out your grace. And that's where grace belongs to. Enable me to then respond like that. So that's what I did, by the way. And you know what happened at the end of that time? We actually increased our giving by 33%. And I haven't missed a cent of it. Because he is good and he can remember what, you, what Rabbi Vijay teaches you over and over again. God is good and he can be trusted to give you what is good. That's why the second part is important when he says, if our hearts do not condemn us, meaning if we are once dealt with it properly in this way, not by a superficial everything is okay, we'll forget about a thing, but by saying, God, yes, I am this kind of a person. My heart is angry. There is a wounded ego. I do rationalize. I am tight-fisted. I'm reluctant to give away my time. Will you please come and touch my heart, Jesus? When you come in that way, then he says, you have confidence before God to receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands. And specifically the commandment, the promise is the promise of joy. Because if you remember, Malcolm talked about that in the very first message. What did he say? What did John write? He says, we are writing these things unto you so that you may have fellowship with God like we have and that your joy might be full. It's ultimately, it's all about joy. So, I want to pray right now for you. I also want to say a couple of things before I pray. 
one brief exercise of reflection, although it's better than nothing, is not enough. So will you make at least one appointment with God during this week? Maybe you need to listen to the sermon again. Maybe, you need to just, maybe you've taken notes, you need to review it. And you need to go through this process. Identify the, that, that movement, the wounded ego, to the anger, to the contempt, to the verbal desecration. The people that you want to avoid, the people that you don't want in your life. And just name the people, name the ugly feelings. Don't dilute them. Confess them before God. Name the rationalization, name the tight-fistedness, whatever works for you. I gave you my rationalizations as honestly as I could. And then do this work of going to a God whose heart is greater than yours. So I'll begin the process, I want to continue. And then a word, just a word, to, there might even be one person here who doesn't consider themselves a follower of Jesus. Can I ask you a question? Isn't this a wonderful way to live? Religion, religion specializes in making you guilty. Religion's focus is the conscience. Religion forces you, or attempts to force you by making you guilty to conform to an external standard. Jesus, as one book puts it, is the end of all religion. <laughs> Jesus says, I want to change you from the inside out. And I'll give you joy. You might want to seriously consider entering this process so that you can turn your back on religion and come right back to Jesus. Let's pray together. <laughs> You really are greater than our hearts. Thank you. Greater than mine is my only hope to keep on coming back to you. There is no heart that you cannot change. Oh God, I thank you for the wonderful, matchless, infinite grace of Jesus. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Broader than the scope of my transgression, greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious, wonderful grace of Jesus with me. Reaching the most defiled, making them God's dear child. Chains have been broken, giving me liberty. For the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches even me. We bless you and we thank you. And Father, for each person in this room who may have identified that relentless progression from a wounded ego anger to contempt to crushing words spoken about and to people to marginalizing may your grace flood them Father and for all of us who have known tight-fistedness and meanness with our possessions for me with my time we ask you again to come you are greater than our hearts you do change our hearts. You do persuade our hearts, the central core of our being, so that our entire life is changed as a result of it. Thank you for so great salvation. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, church. You are good. You are good when there's nothing good in me. You are love, you are love on display for all to see. You are light, you are light when the darkness closes in. You are hope, you are hope, you have covered all my sins.